My name is Suzanne Legrand, and this is Disobedient Femmes. Today, my guest is communications consultant, speaker, and writer, Jana Lopez, who has just published her first book entitled Me, My Selfie, and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So to begin, I want to start with the title of the book, Me, My Selfie, and I, spelled E-Y-E, as in eyeball, suggests that the midlife journey is about learning to see yourself. Can you first talk about the ways that perhaps we are not able to see ourselves clearly, especially as we get older? That's a great question. Uh, The me is the person you know yourself to be in the world. It's the cognitive relationship you have to who you are, which you cannot ignore or get rid of. It runs the show. The selfie is the person that you project in the world based on social media, roles, expectations, things that you've had to kind of learn how to keep up with. And the I, the E-Y-E, is the person you learn to try and see again in the midlife funky junk, as I call it. And what keeps us from that, there's many things, but I would say primarily it's the notion that we have to hold on to this identity of who we think we are. And I know that sounds very cliche, but when you are a nurse or if you're a teacher or if that's all you know yourself to be in the world and that's just so embedded into who you are, if you're a mother, if you're a sister, when those things go away, if they should go away in midlife and something happens, then you are stripped bare and you're the emperor with no clothes at Times Square at rush hour. And a lot of people call this a midlife crisis. Yes, they do. I think that that has been convenient to call it something because it hasn't had another name. I don't believe it's a crisis. I do believe there are elements that feel like crisis, but I think it's grief. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's grief. All of those pieces of who you are, as they disintegrate, your children move away, your parents die, things change. All of those layers start to melt away and with it goes the person that you thought you were. And so much of it is left being sitting in a dark space which has no answers, which has no clarity, and there's sadness and disassociation, and so much of it is exactly like grief. It is grief. That's why. (laughs) Do you think this process is inevitable? Is it part of life? Yes, I do. I think everybody at some juncture reaches this place within themselves. It's not an existential crisis necessarily, although it also has elements of that, It is when the person that you were is no longer there necessarily, all of the tools, all the tricks, all the things that you thought you could rely on that you made it in life don't work anymore. So that's why you're left with this feeling of disassociation and depression and sort of like this darkness. I call it the seven Ds. Something happens and it's inevitable and it's going to happen in midlife. It's death. Somebody you know dies disease, you get a disease diagnosis, divorce, uh, disillusionment, dismantling. These are these are things that some form or fashion will happen in midlife. And because of where you are, and the timing, it causes the rest of your identity to topple. Mm-hmm. Would you say besides grief, that provides 
creative opportunities? Yes, but not in the way that we think of them. I think we have to become resourceful in ways that we might not have had to call upon in the past. So maybe that is a form of creative opportunities. I wouldn't say I would pick up a brush to paint a picture in the middle of the funky junk, but did I get creative? I I think I got creative. It was mostly out of necessity. I don't know that I would have named it then in that time. I think it's fertile ground for sure. And I think some creative expression can come from that for sure but I don't know that I would necessarily funnel it into creativity. Could you talk a little bit about your particular experience of midlife, which I think probably motivated you to write this book? Oh, boy. Yeah, it was definitely the funky junk. It was not good. It was a really rough four years. I call it, instead of the dark night of the soul, which so many people I've talked about and are familiar with, I reframed the whole thing to be called the dark flight of the self. And to me, that meant uh, instead of night, it was flight because night inferred one and done. Like I, in my book, I say drinking cheap vodka out of red solo cups and making bad decisions. <laughs> it's not exactly like that. It's much longer, much more jagged, has no guideposts, so to speak. Um, and I called it self instead of soul because soul infers it's this thing that you don't really have any control over or relationship to. It just kind of happens. Whereas self is this person that you know yourself to be that you cannot deny. So the dark flight of the self is this dismantling of this relationship you have to your own identity. That's what it is. And for me, I had a uh, high-powered job. I had a business. I had a publication, 10 years. It was my life, my heart, my soul. And things combusted at the end when I went to go sell it. And I was fired from the thing that I knew and loved and had related to like a third child, as I say. Um, in an instant. And that completely altered my relationship to who I thought I was in the world in that moment. So how did you, I don't know if the word is recover or create a new self if, if your old self has, ha, is being um, dismantled? What did you do? Well, I would say uh, for me, it was a lot of years of being really hard on myself, being angry at things I couldn't name, feeling disassociated. Um, it was it was not a fun time. Slowly and surely, and in without my even knowing, I, I started to come th through something. It, it's not really out of anything because I'm still reforming, and you know I'm fifty, going to be fifty three soon. So I think what I would want people to know is if you are going through something to recognize that it's grief and it takes time. And if your friend died you and you were really sad and you loved that person and you knew that person really well, you wouldn't say, hurry up, get your act together. What's the matter with you? <laughs> She's dead. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't treat it that way. So you have to kind of recognize it that that's what you're in. And just be kinder to yourself along the way. And I know that sounds so oversimplified, but had I known it was a thing like the dark flight of the self, if I would have known it was grief, and if I would have known that something profound was changing as all of the pieces of my 
livelihood of myself were going away, I, I might have been a little bit nicer. So I think for me, it was baby steps. And like I started photographing hummingbirds, which is a really simple joy for me. And it was never anything I knew how to do. And I don't even really know how to take photos. I'm not a technical person, but I could start photographing gorgeous pictures of hummingbirds. And that felt like a symbolic and metaphorical translation of the me that I was no longer and the me that was like trying to be seen and heard, like knocking on the door, like, hey, I'm in here. And uh, because it brought me such joy and I didn't have to do anything to initiate it. There was nothing I had to produce, no results, no outcome. So I could just be with it. In the book, you do talk about the symbolism for you of hummingbirds. Would you just tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, hummingbirds. Wow, that's just so funny because I grew up in L.A. It wasn't like I was around nature. I had never really had a relationship with birds or specifically even hummingbirds. And my husband one day in the middle of the funky junk brought home a feeder and it was in March and it was just after this months and months of rain and you know how it goes here in Portland, just slogs on and he brought like regular feeder and a hummingbird feeder and he says, oh, I'm going to put out these feeders. I'm like, okay, whatever. So he put out the bird feeders and one of the recipes for the hummingbird mixture required, you have to mix it up and this and that and it looked really weird. I said, I don't think that's right. Let me check. So I went online and I was like, well, thank God I checked because that red stuff that he was mixing up is like poison. So I was like, this is what you need to do. This is what they need. So we put the feeder out and I sat there and I waited and I waited and it was the weirdest thing. This little hummingbird flew up and I called him my customer. It was like I opened up a store and put my sign out and I had my first customer and I was so excited. And I just was like engrossed with the beauty and the agility and how tiny they were. And they were just so cute and little. And I just like saw them for the first time. And then every day I was like sitting by the window like a little kid waiting for my next customer. And it was just a really sweet, innocent love of something I had nothing to do with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there a metaphor um, in the hummingbird for how we can change or persevere? Oh, God, yes. I did so much reading. And I actually have information about hummingbirds on my website on janalopez.com because I learned so much I wanted to share it. The hummingbird is a sign of magic and freedom and agility and adaptation. Uh, they can fly up. They can fly forward and backward. Their wings move in the symbol of infinity they're extremely resilient. They have amazing speed. They can fly from up above when they're coming into something to up to 65 miles an hour, these tiny little things. So it's pretty, pretty awesome. And then I studied the legend of the hummingbird and all of the places that they've appeared over time in mythology and what they have represented. And they are really powerful and magical and spiritual and are all about just joy and adaptation and magic and they're amazing are those things that we can use to transform our identities at midlife i absolutely think so because i think it's there for everybody it may not be a hummingbird maybe it's 
a recipe that your grandmother gave you, or maybe it's something that you pick up at a thrift store and it ignites you the idea of knitting. I mean, I think anything that invokes uh, a spark within you that you didn't really know or weren't really aware of, and you don't really have to do anything or be anything different to make it happen. I, I think those little things are like whispers. I call them whispers and crumbs, the things that you that you follow. And I think we all have them. And the, for me, the hummingbird was the translator between the person I was and the person I could be because it spoke a language that I had no cognition or mental relationship to. I want to talk about that, about um, cognition and the cognitive self. In the book, you talk about thinking about your life versus feeling and actually living it. What's the difference? And how did you come to more fully live your life as opposed to think about it? Oh, that's such a good question. I think we see, <laughs> I believe that we try to make sense of things based on what our minds do and don't believe about certain things. So that's where judgment comes in, where expectation comes in, like all these experiences that we might have. I mean, if you want to dance, but you feel silly and you tell yourself you look stupid, who knows how your body might feel just from the movement, but your mind has already shut it down. You've already told yourself what the experience is going to be. You've completely bypassed the whole experience. So what I had to learn, and I'm still learning, the feeling component always felt very awkward to me. I always felt like in my life, my childhood, my, my relationship to how to move in the world, thinking gets stuff done, feeling not so much. Like I didn't equate feeling to anything you could produce or there wasn't an outcome or so there wasn't really any room for a feeling life. I know some people are super empathic and live their life through feelings, but like if you were to say, tell me what you're feeling in your, your body right now, it would really be a stretch. <laughs> For me to understand it, I think we think I, I think we get into the space of survival and that we feel this illusion of control and our ideas and our thoughts are pretty much what guide us and move us in the world. But but I don't think that's where we're at. I don't believe that at all. Did you have to learn how to get into your feeling body in order to move through this midlife um, flight? Well, I would say that I'm still doing that now. I think I'm still shy and unknown to myself. I feel like I still get awkward and uncomfortable. I still have to remind myself. I mean, everybody's told me you should take a yoga class. <laughs> the last thing I can imagine myself doing is taking a yoga class. But the point is that you're in your body. And I think it's just as simple as being in a moment and taking a breath and like, you know, here I am, like those three words here, I am like, if you just even took into those words and let it run through your body, I definitely know when I'm feeling uh, an epiphany as opposed to thinking or having a realization as an epiphany. It's different. So slowly, slowly I'm getting to know myself, the body self, that, that is where everything is stored and hangs out. That's a mystery to me. So going back to the title of your book, um, uh, Me, selfie, and I, you talked about your selfie, the selfie as kind of the <laughs> the self that you present to other people. 
and that is different from E-Y-E-I. Can you talk about that difference? Definitely. I think that people that are living midlife now or that are struggling are definitely living in another time. The whole social media thing has completely complicated and kept us away from how we process, how we reflect, how we internalize, how we make allowance for our life. Because I was going through such a hard time, I joked that there wasn't really a hashtag for, you know, I'm a loser, I got fat, I'm eating ice cream and drinking every night. Like, you know, there was no hashtag for that. So the social media thing was definitely an influence. And I think we get too used to managing those selves, whether we show up at work and people say, how was your weekend? Oh, it was fine. You know, you don't talk to them about what really happened over the weekend. I got in a fight with my husband and he pissed me off and he left the house. And, you know, you don't, there's no realness in those things. And we manage these social selves and internalize the social selves as if they are ourselves, but they completely take away from the room or the allowance for diving deeper into what's there. And I wonder if there's a tension between a version of yourself that lives in a picture, right, which is what other people know you as and the self that you are that's changing that doesn't absolutely fit in the picture so to speak and I wonder if we're almost forced to maintain a version of ourselves that is actually no no longer representative of who we are because of other people's expectations I'd say it's a hundred percent yeah a hundred percent if you were a teacher, or if you were a nurse, or if your friends revolved around the hospital that you worked at as a nurse, and you got fired, your your social circle would change. And then who would you be on social media? Like, what would you project? And would you be invited to those dinner parties anymore? And all you could see how all of those things would spiral around you would start to dissipate. And yet, you're not posting about the latest vaccines or shots, because you're not the nurse anymore. And so where does that leave you? It's, it's like the odd elbow on the bed that has looking for a place to prop itself up, but just has nowhere to go. So you're, you're always balancing that and trying to hide behind that and trying to flee from that all at the same time. And it's very uh, conflicting and unsettling. And I think it's a place where probably more people live than not. Uh, also 100%. <laughs> I, I mean, I only know a few people who are not on social media. Mm -hmm. And I would say most people I know are working at promoting something or sharing something or posting pictures of stupid food, you know, <laughs> it's like, look at me, I'm eating this beautiful ratatouille. <laughs> it's so what? You know, I mean, I used to joke and say hashtag burnt toast. You know, I, wonder, <laughs> I wonder if anybody would care uh, just to see if you got any response. Uh, I think we're we're very busy managing that and projection, keeping it alive. So, do you have suggestions for how we can live in a more ambivalent place? That is. You know, a lot of people are trying to maintain a, an image that may or may not be actually true of their lives or reflective of the truth of their lives. 
But it's hard, on the other hand, to live in that place of ambivalence. And especially because so much of our connections with other people are about a recognizable identity. How can we navigate this territory between identities or, or the identity of, of being ambivalent in process, not finished, not maybe not ready for a picture? I would say there's two words that come to mind. One is kindness. And I, again, such a cliche, but if you were just a little bit kinder to yourself, and recognize that it's going to take time, it's grief. And like with all grief, you can't control it, you can't guide it, you can't tell it how it's going to land, where it's going to go. It's in your heart, it's deep, it's real, it's unnameable. Uh, the second word is allowance. People always talk about acceptance. And I hate that word. Because well, maybe hates too strong. I really dislike that word because acceptance implies that you have to do something. And it may be something that you're asked to do that you don't know how to do, or what that means, or you're not able to do. So then you just end up feeling worse about yourself. But allowance means you're making room. It's like taking the whole landscape and letting it open up and seeing what's there and just letting it unfold as it's going to unfold. So kindness and allowance I don't know if it w I would even be ambivalent. I think it's more of like a, uh, well, I, I mean, ambivalence, it, it, one of the words, but it's, but it's just more like, uh, I, I don't know. I can't think of the right word right now because it's just so unnameable. Mm -hmm. But I think kindness and allowance. Mm -hmm. And those are also how we work through grief, I imagine. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. In, in grief, when, when somebody you know that you truly love has died, you think about what it was about them you loved. You honor them. You cry when you need to cry. You eat Ben and Jerry's if you need to. You take a walk. You get angry. Like all of those emotions, so, uh, it's so much similar to what you're going through when you're in your midlife grief. What about with respect to your relationships to other people? Because a lot of times other people want you to maintain the person that you've been because that's how they know you. That is, that's a good, that's a very good point. And that chapter I wrote about is how to be a we when there's nothing of me. Uh, it, it does require negotiation in, in many different ways. I think you will lose friends along that, that way. I have. I mean, I had friends for 18, 19 years who were no longer in my life. And I could have said, well, it's because she got mad at this, this or this. But it really, it's just the underlying thing that things were changing as they should necessarily. And it's like an old layer of skin, those things, those people, those circumstances start to shed away and and make room and new people should be coming in that more reflect some of where you're at. It, it It's just an inevitable part of grief, right? Mm -hmm. Things die. And I think that you're going to spend a long time trying to figure out who you are. And it really would be exhausting to try to have to explain it to somebody when you don't even know yourself. Mm -hmm. And if somebody's gonna be with you and love you, they're going to support the process of the grieving. Mm -hmm. 
that seems like all we could hope for in a friendship at this, or, or a relationship of any kind. So why did you write this book? So why I wrote the book and why I put the book out are two different things, very different things. I wrote the book because I wanted to have a true and honest conversation with myself. I was in such a funky space that I thought I owe it to myself in my one life, as far as I know it, to really have a conversation and see what's there. And I was never going to write a book. And the point of having the conversation was just to see what was there and just to dig in. And so that's what I did. My counselor that I was seeing had suggested, look, as far as you know, no one's going to see it. Just have a conversation with yourself. And that felt very open and inviting to me. So that's what I did. And it, and it was years of a conversation. And then I put it out because I knew so many people going through this in some form or fashion. So many people I knew were lonely and isolated and afraid and feeling small and overwhelmed and going through a variation of this. And I felt like once I identified it as grief and as a dark flight of the self, if I would have had that when I was going through it, it might have helped. And when I was looking, so much of what's out there is so overly prescriptive and cliche. And, you know, seven steps to happiness with somebody jumping in the air, you know, that nobody does that, you know, with the sun behind them wearing white yoga pants. <laughs> Find your bliss, you know, it just, it made me mad. Like, it just pissed me off. There are these people out there, one who I can't name, but she calls herself a spiritual junkie. And I was like, wow, you know, with her watercolor Instagram posts with hashtags, the universe has your back. <laughs> and it just made me so mad because if you don't feel like you belong, if that doesn't resonate with you, if your stuff is messy and untidy and you're barely able to brush your teeth, it doesn't work. So I felt like we owe it to each other and ourselves to have a more honest conversation. So I wanted to change the way people talk about midlife and honor its messiness and untidiness and let it be. For people who are reading your book, what do you want them to take away? Whatever it is that they resonate with. And I, and I truly mean that because the few people that I've talked to so far, because the book is just out, I am amazed and so humbled by what they have said stands out for them. The, at the 30,000 foot view, you're not alone. Be kinder to yourself. You're in grief. That would be great. And then along the way, there's little stories and anecdotes and things. I hope they, they see themselves something that, that, that resonates for them that says, hey, you can, you can find a way through this and, and you're not alone in it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been great. I've been speaking today with communications consultant, speaker and writer, Jana Lopez, who has just published her first book entitled Me, My Selfie and I. I am Suzanne Legrand and this is Disobedient Femmes. Today, my guest is communications consultant, speaker, and writer, Jana Lopez, who has just published her first book entitled Me, My Selfie, and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are. For more interviews with 
women writers, artists, and activists who are changing the world, please subscribe to Disobedient Femmes.